God held me in an embrace for a very long time. I felt his compassion, his love, his soothing. And then when the explosion subsided, he sent me back to my body with the wisdom that there are victims at both ends of the gun. Forgiveness really all that important? How do you deal with failure? What are some new tools I can use to live a life of complete freedom? These are some of the questions we'll be asking in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Hey everyone, welcome back to See One Beautiful Soul. I'm Barbara Heller. So I'm so excited to report that my book is out on Amazon. It's called And then one day the world coughed. It's a children's book for children of all ages. It's really for families of all ages because the point of it was for families to sit together on the couch and read it together and talk about why this pandemic is happening, what's going on, what can we glean from it. Um, I'm happy to say that I did it messy. I painted 41 pictures and that's the illustrations in the book. And part of that was because I teach this course on finding your creative clarity and I wanted to act my words out, which is do it, get it done, do it yourself, DIY. So I hope that it inspires people to write their own children's books and draw their own children's books about things that matter to them for the kid inside of them and for kids that they know, even if the kids that they know are in adult bodies, because that's everyone. So yeah, go out and get that book. It's uh, $8.99 on Kindle, on Amazon, and also paperback copy. I I hear it's doing well. People really enjoy it. I'm also starting brand new courses all the time, like Find Your Creative Clarity. This is an eight-week adventure in finding your clarity for what you really want to do creatively, and it's a great way to heal and just get unstuck. And also meet people at the same time who might be growing through a similar thing. And you can find that at findcreativeclarity.com or just go to barbheller.com and search for Find Your Creative Clarity course. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and or on Spotify. Please leave us a review and comment, uh, especially on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. So if you haven't done that yet, please pull over, pause this and do it now. Leave us a review. Please, please, please. It helps us so very much. My very first guest is Azim Kamisa. I was praying about who should I have for the first guest of this podcast that's all about forgiveness. And then a friend of mine named Craig Parks, uh, thank you, Craig, a big shout out to you, saw my podcast being advertised and said, you have to get this guy on your podcast. He is the perfect guest for you. And he turned out to be my first guest. Uh, His story is amazing. I don't want to take away from it. And once you hear it, I think you'll also agree that there's probably a small group of people that he fits into who could talk about forgiveness in only the way that he could. And you'll understand why in a few seconds. I am so happy that he is joining us because he is not just a speaker, an author, and activist. He is just an incredible human being. He was born in Kenya, Africa, and had training in economics and international finance, and his life took a turn when his son got killed, and he had to 
make a decision about how he was going to choose to get up in the morning and live the rest of his life. Uh, I think that you will find his story not just inspiring, but incredibly earth shattering. And it may actually shatter your beliefs about forgiveness in general when you hear it. I know that it has done that for many people who attend his seminars and his public speaking events. I really don't have much else to say, but please just listen to this guy talk. So without further ado, this is my meeting with Azim Kamisa. So Azim, it is such a pleasure and an honor to make your acquaintance. I can't believe like we haven't met yet because just watching you and listening to you speak online just made my heart so full. I'm a, I'm a crier. I'm also a laugher. You know, I feel so very connected to you, even though we don't know each other. But I feel like I've known you my whole life because if I could be so humble as to say that we might be cut from the same tree. And that is, you know, the logo of our podcast. I feel like we are all like the tree. And if we're not, we should take lessons from it. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your courage. I would love to start out, and I'm sure you have done this a million times, Times, but for, for those who have not had the privilege and the honor yet of seeing your videos or, you know, know your story, could you just give us a brief synopsis of who you are, where you come from? And then also I'm going to ask you what happened that got you to this place of full-time speaking about forgiveness. So that's kind of the order we'll go in. <laughs> but I know you're bigger than the story that a lot of people are privileged to know about you. So if you want to just start with where are you from and how did you get here? <laughs> All right, Barbara. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to meet you. Love your energy and I love your programming and the good work that you are doing in the world as well. I would say always a heartfelt blessing. Uh, when I meet people, which I've met a lot of people as a result of my own work over the last 25 years, that are doing great work. So that's good to know that there are more of us out there because it's sorely needed. Maybe not as many of us out there as we need, but I'm glad more and more people are awakening up to the importance of creating a more inclusive, compassionate, more forgiving, more peaceful and more loving and generous and kind world. And that's been my work for the last 25 years. I was born in Kenya. Uh, my roots are Eastern, and I was educated in England. My college life was in England. I would still have been in Kenya had Idi Amin not happened. Idi Amin, he was a dictator in Uganda. And in the middle 70s, uh, he essentially threw out all of the non-indigenous people. And a lot of my family was affected because uh, we were a minority. Uh, living in a country with 40 million people where the non-indigenous population was a half a million, it wasn't a very you know, large population. And when that happened, uh, it uh, shook us pretty heavily because we were doing quite well. My grandfather emigrated to Kenya in 1906. My father was born there. I was born there. I have a daughter that was born there. My son that I lost was born here. And my wife was pregnant. I should say my ex-wife, we're not together anymore, but uh, we're good friends, was pregnant when I decided to emigrate out of Kenya because I didn't think that children would be safe there because we were a targeted minority. So being educated in the West, although it wasn't easy, I was able to get my papers and emigrate to the U.S. in the middle 70s, thinking my children would be safer in America. Mm -hmm. 
So it was very ironic that Tariq, who was my son, uh, my only son, I have a beautiful daughter, was born here and went to school. He grew up with his mom. Obviously, I was in his life. And then when he graduated high school, he moved to San Diego, where I live, to go to San Diego State and be closer to me, which was great because uh, I saw him more often than I otherwise did. He was a uh, good writer, a good photographer, a great sense of humor, a joy to be around, had a beautiful girlfriend, Jennifer. He um, wanted someday to work for National Geographic because he loved cultures, he loved to travel. He was a good writer, good photographer. His uh, hero was Gandhi, a man of peace. Uh, he was like an old soul in a young body. And he worked Fridays and Saturdays as a pizza delivery man while he was going to school. Mm. Because I had no idea that that was a, a dangerous job. I mean, when I was in school in England, I worked for the post office in England because I loved the outdoors. He loved the outdoors. And, and I had a desk job for him, but he liked to be outside. So he found this job by himself. And he was lured to a bogus address by a youth gang. It was a last delivery on a Saturday night. He worked Fridays and Saturdays. And it was his turn to go make the delivery. And they gave the right apartment address with the wrong apartment number. So he showed up at the apartment building with the pizza order, knocked on many doors, and nobody ordered the pizzas because there was no apartment number. They gave the right address of the building but the wrong apartment. So he came back to the car, put the pizzas in the trunk of his car, and as he was about to back his car from the driveway of the apartment building, was accosted by four youth gang members. Three of them were 14-year-old, and the leader of the gang was an 18-year-old who handed a 9 millimeter handgun to a 14-year-old, and as my son is trying, he's in the car, in the driver's side seat, he's trying to back his car from the driveway. The 18-year-old gave the order to the 14-year-old, bust him bones, gang initiation, fired one round, which came through the driver's side window, entered my son's body under the left armpit, and the bullet uh, traveled across the upper part of his chest and actually exited from his right armpit. But as the coroner explained to me later, he said the bullet followed a perfect path. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting choice of word. But he was quick to tell me, Mr. Kumisa, I'm not trying to be insensitive. We don't see a path like this very often. And what it means in my lingo, that it destroyed all the vital organs in your son's body and Tariq died a couple of minutes later, drowning in his own blood over a lousy pizza at the age of 20. So needless to say, it brought my life to a crashing halt. It's the worst nightmare of any parent. Had I been there, I would put my body between the bullet and him. As a parent, you instinctively do that. You don't think about it. Your children are such a big part of your life. And I went through all the emotions. I didn't do this work. I worked as an international investment banker, traveled the world. I speak a half a dozen languages. I routinely flew in from London, changed suitcases, and flew to Tokyo. That was my life. And I remember after he died, it, it took all of my willpower just to, just to get out of bed. And I couldn't figure out where all this energy had gone. Uh, it was despair, hopelessness. 
no motivation. I was suicidal at one point. I really did not know how to move forward without myself. I mean, how do you do that? But I uh, practice as a Sufi Muslim, and my mom was very spiritual. My dad was a businessman. So I grew up with equal emphasis on my career and my spiritual life. And I started to meditate when I was 20 years old. I was trained by one of the cronies of my mom, because she, the Sufis were big in meditation. And I used to meditate an hour a day. Today, my practice is two hours. So while I couldn't sleep, uh, all of your biological functions shift, you don't eat, I could meditate because I lost Tariq in my early 40s. So I had a pretty strong foundation. Uh, and I think that's what saved me. And what happened to me, looking back at this tragedy happened 25 years ago, is uh, Tariq had just gotten engaged to Jennifer, which was his fiancée, and they moved in together. So when I got the call from Homicide to tell me that uh, Tariq had been shot and killed, I didn't believe that because a parent can never go there. And it didn't make any sense because he was a good kid. He mm -hmm. wasn't into any kind of a trouble. And my first thought was it's a mistaken identity because in San Diego, half of our population is Hispanic. They have dark skin like I do and like Tariq did. So I thought, oh, they, they made a mistake, you know, it can't be Tariq. So I quickly hung up on homicide and called Jennifer, expecting him to pick up the phone. Of course he didn't, she did, and surely they knew because homicide went to their place first. She was just sobbing, and then it hit. And I was in my kitchen, and I remember I lost strength in both of my legs as I collapsed to the floor. Yeah. I curled up in a ball, hit my head against the refrigerator. I don't have the words to describe to you how excruciatingly painful that experience was for me. And it was so painful that I couldn't even stay in my body. I left my body. And I've read when victims suffer trauma, like I did, or sometimes they rape victims, they do leave their body that God gave us this tool to not stay in our body with such unbearable, devastating pain. And I believe in God, and I left my body, and I believe I went into the loving arms of God. It was like a nuclear bomb that had gone off in my heart. And I don't remember how long I was gone for. It felt like a long time, and God held me in an embrace for a very long time. I felt his compassion, his love, his soothing. And then when the explosion subsided, he sent me back to my body with the wisdom that there are victims at both ends of the gun. So it didn't come from my intellect or my loving heart. It was more a download from a higher power. And I didn't really connect with that wisdom because uh, I lived by myself. And my best friend uh, was with me an hour and a half later after having made some very difficult calls to Tariq's mother, my mm. parents, my daughter. How do you tell a mother she's never going to see her son again? Tariq uh, had a very special relationship with her mom. I do too have a special relationship with my mom, although I, she passed three years ago and I still miss her. It's a very, very excruciating calls. And then my best friend says, well, don't do anything. Uh, Kit and I'll be there. Kit's his wife. His name is Dan. And when they got there, I said, oh, my God, Jennifer is by herself. So Kit says, I'll go get her. And I was alone with my buddy. 
And he said to me, by this time we knew because we had homicide visit us. There were some youth gang involved with Tariq's murder. There were some eyewitnesses. They were following up on it. And the first thing my, my friend said to me after Kit left for Jennifer, he says, where were these kids are that killed Tariq? I hope they fry in hell. I looked at him and I says, you know what, Dan, I don't feel that way. I see that there are victims at both ends of the gun. And I remember he broke down and cried. He said, Azim, where do you get this strength? Somebody took my son's life, Adam, because Adam was his son. He says, not only would I want uh, the killer, I'd want the whole clan. I never went there. Forgiveness was not in my heart back then. I, I had no clue there was such thing as youth gangs, you know. My, my, they were not on my radar screen. And then, since Tariq was killed by a 14-year-old, how terrible the problem of youth violence is in our culture. I mean, it is huge. Every community, whether it's urban or suburban, mm -hmm. is plagued with youth violence. I mean, we lose a kid every couple hours. Mm. The economists took 25 first world countries in the world, like Germany, England, France, Australia, and counted all the kids that die in those 25 countries, and they take the total and multiply that by 11, that is how many we lose in the United States of America. We think about Sandy Hook, Newtown, Connecticut, 25 and 6 years old. First graders were gunned down in automatic machine gun fire in the richest nation in the world. How did, how did we get here, was my question. How did we get to a society where children kill children? I'm at 14. They're too young to drive a car or vote or buy an alcoholic drink, but you're not too young to hold a gun. I mean, it's crazy stuff. It's not about money. We are the richest nation in the world. And we can spend billions of dollars on wars. Yet every single day, right here in our own backyard, our defenseless children are being wiped out in a frenzy of bizarre violence. Why aren't we doing more? So you know, that nine months after Tariq died, having learned these horrific statistics and learning that we lose so many young souls, and to honor my son for my family and me, I felt I had to do something. And I founded the Tariq Kamisa Foundation. It's named after my son. The initial mission of the foundation was to stop kids from killing kids by breaking the cycle of youth violence. And we essentially had three mandates. First was to save lives of children because we lose so many. Our second mandate was to empower the right choices so they don't fall through the crack and then choose lives of gangs and drugs and weapons and alcohol. And our third mandate was to teach the principles of nonviolence, of accountability, of empathy, of compassion, of forgiveness, of peacemaking. And I started with a very simple premise that violence is a learned behavior. No child is born violent. Tony was not born violent. But if you accept that as a truism, then nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. 100%. But you have to teach it. Because kids are not going to learn this through osmosis. So with the grace of God, the foundation is 25 years old. And with the grace of God, uh, we are teaching these principles. We have a safe school model. We have five different programs. We're keeping kids away from violence and gangs and drugs and alcohol. We're cutting expulsions and suspensions by 70%. We're teaching these important values. 
soft values, of kindness, of empathy. We cut truancy by 92%. We, I mean, I've had over 150,000 letters. I've given a thousand presentations to students. And, and not only are the kids learning these concepts of empathy and compassion and forgiveness and accountability and being community engaged and how you solve violence, how do you solve conflict without violence, how do you become non-violent leaders that are, communi- mm-hmm. that are committed to peacemaking. Uh, not only are they learning this principle, they are, they are hungry for it. As evidenced by the letters that I have given, I, let me read this letter to you. So this is, a, I, I spoke at a high school, Bishops, which is a very high-end private high school that, it's actually it's not a high school, it's a middle and a high school. So it goes all the way from sixth grade to 12th grade. And it costs like $35,000 to send your student to Bishops for one year. It's 106 years old, probably one of the top schools. Every kid that graduates from there goes to an Ivy League school. It was 800 students I spoke to, 200 faculty. At the end of it, there are several students that came and talked to me. And then this one particular student came up to me, and here's what she said. She says, my name is Vanessa Brunetta. I'm a senior at Bishop's School. Following your presentation on campus November 8th, last Friday, I had a very heartfelt encounter with you, and I really appreciate the time you took out of your day to listen to my story for a few minutes. I previously attended a middle school where you presented about seven years ago and changed the outlook I had on life at that time. I have been in foster care system since age eight, and your story and ability to spread the idea of peace inspired me to take the appropriate steps towards success as a 13-year-old. Following your presentation seven years ago, my attitude towards the world no longer represented hatred, but took me down a path of forgiveness. Forgiveness of my biological mother, whom I deem responsible for my being in the foster care system, and forgiveness of the world, whom I held accountable for all of my young confusion and pain. Today, as a senior, I'm extremely appreciative of the message you have and continue to spread, as it has not only changed my life seven years ago, but still influences my daily journey. It was a pleasure meeting you seven years ago, and again for the second time last week. Can you see your light sometimes and how giant the blaze is? Do you get to see it through other people's eyes? It's the work. I'm grateful for this work. Somehow I found purpose in my tragedy. Mm-hmm. But having now talked to so many kids and then getting letters like this. I mean, this is a Kamala Harris in, in making. She's now at an Ivy League school. And who knows, she may reform the foster care system. Right. It wouldn't surprise me. Obviously, she won a scholarship to Bishop. She couldn't afford to pay 35000 a year. She was a special student. And in one presentation, look where she is. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Yeah, you can see determination in her, you know? Yeah. You know, I wasn't trained to do this work, you know. I came sure. from business work. Yeah. Say, so I have a PhD in greed and avarice. I, you know, was working in investment banking, which is a tough part of the business world. And obviously, that was not my life's mission and my life's purpose. Yeah. The gift that my son left me with is he put me on my purpose. Sometimes the tears come to me because I'm so grateful to him. This work that I've done has been extremely fulfilling. And I've written five books, my first one from murder to forgiveness and then forgiveness to fulfillment because I've been very fulfilled to have done this work, especially with young people. Yeah. And then uh, the trilogy is from fulfillment to peace. Mm. 
And Tony wrote the foreword to that last book. Uh, he's finally out. You know, I've been working to get him out. I met him when he was 19. He's 39 years old. He was finally released in April of 2019 and then had to be in a halfway home. Left halfway home in October and now lives with his grandfather, you know. Does he speak with you? All the time, yeah. yeah we meet all the time. In fact, I've been in his life since he was 19. Do you go and speak together in front of large groups? Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, he's not doing as much, but yesterday we did a presentation for the California Judges Association. The moderator was the judge who actually sentenced him. Was it televised? Was it? No, it's actually, uh, we are pre-recording the presentation, which is next month. But because of COVID, there are no conventions anymore. So this is going to be a virtual presentation that we pre-recorded. It will be available hopefully after the 26th of September. And she spoke, I spoke, the grandfather spoke, my daughter who is now the executive director of my her brother's foundation spoke and tony spoke it's a powerful piece about what's possible you know Mm -hmm. i always believe that in every crime there's an opportunity to better society but that rarely happens but it did happen in my story yeah, well, it's still happening through your story. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've reached over 600,000 kids, 400 schools. And I personally have given them 1,000 presentations outside the foundation, so another million kids. And it continues, you know. I mean, the work continues. It's been an amazing journey. Thank you so much for all of that. I finally stopped crying, but I'm mm-hmm. glad that you kept going because I didn't want to stop you, but also I wouldn't have been able to speak audibly. So (laughs) they say words that come from the heart go right into the heart. And, you know, that's not an easy story to tell. And I'm sure it, you know, I did a one woman show for a long time and my childhood wasn't super easy. And there was a time when I had to stop doing it because it just hurt too much to do it. So I'm honored and privileged and grateful that you have the strength to keep telling your story you know, even on another podcast, because every single person that hears it, like that girl who wrote you the letter, you are so much more than just your story because you're telling it and how you tell it. I mean, I don't really have words to describe being in the presence of an angel or someone who is aware of their, one of their purposes. Like we all have multiple in our lives. If we're lucky and we're listening with both ears and both eyes, we can see some of one maybe. And I feel like you are one of the few people I've ever met who really knows one of your purposes. And it's so cool to watch that. And for anyone listening right now who's struggling with figuring out what they want to do with their life, you know, I really believe that whatever happens to us is for us and our mess is our message and our mission. You know, to think that you would have been an investment banker continuously and yet this is what you're doing now. I mean, yeah, I'm glad you're thanking your son for your mission because part of your mission was raising him to be the angel that he became on this planet. But it's very obvious to me, based on my theories about life, based on what I've studied, that we are all just souls having a human experience and and his clear path was just very, very sudden and short. It's so obvious to me that God chose him to be a beacon of light for all of us who are valuing money and valuing power so much so that somehow these four children, I'll call even the 18-year-old a child, five altogether, four 14-year-olds and one? Four. 
yeah. three, 14 years old, one 18 year old. Yeah. So these virtually these children were standing there and it sounds as if it wasn't premeditated. Like, Oh, we want to get Tariq. They just wanted somebody to prove their power through. Correct. Yeah. The gang culture is you have to prove yourselves. Let me share another story with you. Here's a lady that was at a school on her way home, which was only four blocks away. Her name is Rocio. On her way back, there was a gang waiting for her. And the gang initiation was, whoever is the next person that crosses the street, you got to go beat her up or him. It's a gang initiation. So she was walking home. And of course, she was the victim. And they really beat her up badly, tore her, you know, pulled her hair, bled. And she was in seventh grade, so she was 13 years old. Fortunately, there was an adult there that interfered and basically was able to free her. And she ran home. A week later, we were at her school, and I'm introduced. Uh, it was the grandfather and I do a live assembly, and we're introduced. This man's grandson killed this man's son, and here that together in the spirit of compassion and forgiveness. He's African-American, I'm Eastern, he's Christian, I'm Muslim, his kid killed my son, and we are brothers. She was so moved that she forgave the gang of members that beat her up and graduated middle school, went to high school, went to Berkeley, and now is one of our top facilitators. Beautiful. And she's brilliant. I'm sure. So it's a powerful message. One of my books uh, is called The Secrets of the Bulletproof Spirit, How to Bounce Back from Life's Hardest Hits. Because we all get hard hits. It's life. And how do you bounce back from it? There's 30 different chapters in it. I actually do a two-day forgiveness workshop where it's a train-the-trainer. So a lot of people that are in social work and that are psychiatrists, MDs, victim services, they work, sometimes I work with hospice, they work with hospitals, come to this course because I teach three milestones on how you forgive people that have harmed you and three milestones how you forgive yourselves because at some level we've all harmed too and it's based on this book so that book i think would be relevant to your audience because they're probably attracted to your podcasts because they probably have had a hard hit and they don't know how to start how to bounce back you have my website azimkamisa.com I'm also on social media for those, especially if you are in providing services. This is a great, it's a train the trainer. Creating spaces for it. Yeah, you can use these steps to help other victims. Well, I wanted to share a couple of things with you and get your thoughts back. So I was reading this morning, a, a rabbi friend of mine sent me a quote, and it said, education's goal is not to produce people that earn more money, but to nurture a sense of responsibility for the world. And in my culture, so I'm Jewish and I've been studying meditation for 25 years. I went to India and Thailand and Japan trying to find my spirituality before I came back to my own roots because the Judaism I was shown as a child from my very non-observant parents and I just kind of ran away. I didn't want to have anything to do with whatever they told me culturally because I was like, it doesn't mean anything because it doesn't matter. Once I started learning about mystical Judaism and and met my rabbis and really started doing deeper work spiritually, I realized I don't just like what I came from. I'm privileged to have it. One of the, the teachings that we learn is the reason why we don't have a third temple at the moment is because the second temple was destroyed because of senseless hatred to each other. And the temple itself, like the Jewish temple, is just a metaphor for the entire world, mm-hmm. right? I, I would love to see the whole world united in peace. Right. Uh, I hope we all do deep down. But according to Jewish theology, and I think most theology, or even most hearts deep down, 
in order to get there, we actually have to practice senseless love, not just random acts of kindness, like actual intended acts of kindness for all including ourselves, because it's the only antidote to all this senseless violence. And the violence that you spoke about earlier reminded me of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. There's so many stories of senseless violence in the Holocaust. These Juden rats, these Jewish mice, they don't matter. And the six million other cultures that were killed, six million other individual souls that didn't necessarily belong to Jews. 12 million total were killed in just the Holocaust. Forget the Armenian Holocaust that happened a little bit later and things that have been happening in Iran and Saudi Arabia and Turkey for so many years. There's Holocaust all the time, but I'm I'm just speaking specifically about the Nazis. The culture was show your power by being violent. Gang violence and what you just described reminded me of that. I also think it's interesting that it took you nine months there's something beautiful about the digestion of this is the crime I would say Hashem or God gave to me. And I'm, I'm going to let it simmer and sit for nine months, whether you were conscious of it or not. And then a new baby was born. And that was like maybe a combination of your son's soul and your soul creating this new united father and son mission that you are carrying on. Mm-hmm. I heard a woman Her name is Nora McInerney. And she had this TED talk about how she lost her husband to cancer. And then a few years later, next husband, she calls him her current husband. And she said, you never get over the grief of losing a loved one Mm -hmm. that's so close to you, but you move forward with them. You move forward with the grief. It's just a part of you, like your arm. And so your own sanity It was as if you had to go to the killer and really the killers, right? All the people that were involved, because I consider all of them, they did this together because they were all in on it together. There's something about the impact that it had, not just on your life, but the ramifications are just so vast. Tell me, does Tony have any idea or did he at the time of what an impact it would have on other people? Like how, how does someone, I mean, he should really be here to speak for himself, but mm-hmm. what have you noticed about him in how he has gotten through this idea? Like, Oh, now I know the impact. Cause you see it in the video when he gives his testimony. No, he, I mean, it, uh, yeah, he's definitely would like to turn the clock back. Sure. He's taken responsibility. He's remorseful. He's changed his behaviors. I have forgiven him. His grandfather's forgiven him. He's still working on his own forgiveness. I'm actually holding his hand through it. Mm. And the more he helps other kids not follow in his former footsteps, the more he can help forgive himself. He had a pretty violent life, had a lot of domestic violence, like you suffered. His favorite uncle was killed in machine gun fire. One of his other uncle's girlfriends seduced him when he was eight years old. He was then finally sent to live with his grandfather. Uh, his father was never in his life. He was born to a 15-year-old, a child having a child. So sometimes I wonder, 
if I had grown up and had the same life as Tony, would I have made the same decision? Plus, the kid who gave him the order to kill my son, the 18-year-old leader, had just shot a homeless person in an alley six weeks before he masterminded this tragedy just to show off to the uh, his uh, homeboys that if they didn't obey him, he could kill them. And so what Tony, happened to him, this godfather, this 18-year-old godfather? So he was uh, tried for both uh, murders. So he got two life sentences without parole. I was not in favor of Tony being tried as an adult. They just reduced the age from 16 to 14. It's back up to 16, which is, I'm glad to see that because I have had something to do with that. The 18-year-old was already tried as an adult. If Tony had been in juvenile, he would have been out before he was 25 years old. He's 39, but he was tried as an adult. So in the adult system, they can send you away forever. What year was the tragedy? 95, January of 1995. So I think I told you my father was the psychologist that deposed Nathaniel Brazil. It was 2001. This is a 13-year-old boy, the first boy, I believe, that was tried as an adult in, in Florida. My dad calls me one day and he says, are you sitting down? I said, yeah. He goes, remember Mr. Bruno from middle school? And I said, yeah, how's he doing? He said, he's not, he's not alive anymore. One of his students shot and killed him. And my heart just sort of, I mean, this is like similar to your son. This is someone who had an old soul who left my school in Boca Raton. Supposedly it had a high SAC score, which means the taxes were very good. The teachers, you know, had good benefits. We didn't need metal detectable. There wasn't such a thing yet in the 90s when I was going to school. But he was so revered and everyone loved him. He just had this jolly personality. And he had such an easy time in this public school in Boca that he decided to go to the other side of the tracks in Delray and work in an inner city school. And this eighth grade kid who's about to graduate and he's a Clinton scholar, he carries a, a letter in his, in his pocket every day from Bill Clinton saying that he was chosen as one of these fine graduates, has a moment of delusion and weakness because a Talk about the significance of words from our elders. One of the administrators of his school got angry at him for throwing a water balloon amongst a crowd of other African-American boys and probably some girls and yelled at him and said, you're never going to graduate from eighth grade. Something like that. Like you just lost your graduation privileges. And it's the last day of school in Florida. Everybody takes out water balloons on the last day of school. It's hot. You know, you're ready for, you're trying to be kind of rebellious. This is like his rebelliousness, right? He was a straight A student and was trying to get past how he grew up, which was, I believe, a prostitute mom, drug use in the home, living with his grandparents. And he had this mental breakdown at 13 years old. I'm not, I'm going to be just like my mom. I'm never going to graduate high school. I thought I was going to high school. Now my life is over. And he probably also had mental illness, runs home, grabs a gun, comes back to school and goes to the one teacher he loves, Mr. Gruno, and says, I need to see my girlfriend. He's holding a gun. And the teacher runs him out of class and says, what are you doing? Is that a water gun? Like how, why would you have a gun? You don't, you're not that kind of a kid. He says, let me see my girlfriend. He doesn't even have a girlfriend, but there's a girl in the class that he has a crush on and he's literally having a nervous breakdown and my teacher says, Nathaniel, lower the gun. This is not funny. You know, you're not allowed in right now. The assistant principal said, you're, you know, you have to be escorted out. 
but you're going to get through this moment. It's going to be okay. And he shoots and kills him with one bullet, leaving a one and a half year old child behind and a wife. And my dad helped him get parole and graduate college. And, you know, I, I think he was in jail for like 20 years. Right. Similar story. Yeah. 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 The first question he asked my dad was, does this mean I can't work for the CIA? So, yeah, I think you have something special that not a lot of people have. And besides your talent and your ability and your incredible strength to hold this story and share it and light other flames with it. I want to draw a parallel to someone who I admired for many years and I still admire her even though she's gone. I want you to look her up. Her name is Rebetzin Esther Jungreis and she was in Auschwitz in Bergen-Belsen as a child. She was came from a very wealthy family from Hungary. Her father and grandfather, I believe, were the highest level rabbis of Budapest and they only read. That's all they did. <laughs> And spoke. She went from third grade to eighth grade in the Holocaust. Wow. And never, ever thought that she would end up alive. She had lice in her hair and was gaunt. And when she was liberated at 13, within a few weeks, went from third grade to eighth grade in school because she was that smart. And when she spoke once, someone who interviewed her, and I just remember them saying, if anyone has advice for living, you are that. No one gets to talk about what it's like to be a survivor in the same way that a Holocaust survivor can. And it's the same thing with you. If anyone wants a degree in forgiveness, they should take your class. Well, you know, we have another lady here, Edith Eager. She's a Holocaust survivor and forgave. We've spoken together, a strong woman, and she's probably in her 80s, but still very present. And I remember in one of my workshops, I had a Jewish lady by the name of Riva. And it's a two-day workshop, which I made it into four days because online, people don't want to sit and looking at a computer for eight hours a day. So we did it in four, four-hour pieces. But when I did it in person, it was eight hours. On the morning of the second day, Riva comes up to me and says, Azim, you don't get it. I am working on forgiving Hitler. Yeah, she had family that was killed in the Holocaust, which is probably one of the biggest blemishes in our history. And I told her, I said, you know, Riva, I do feel empathy and compassion for your loss of your ancestors. And I remember Edith, because I knew her at that time, and I said, let me tell you one thing. I believe there is no escaping wrongdoing. Karma always balances, and it's better that you separate yourself from Hitler. I had to separate myself from Tony. He has his journey, I have my journey. Jennifer, who was Tariq's girlfriend, was very angry with me because I forgave Tony. And I told Jennifer, you know what? I'm going to leave Tony to the higher power. Yeah. I'm not going through life in anger and resentment because I understood that if I stayed in anger and resentment and hatred, who am I hurting yeah. myself? There's a great quote from Mandela, it says resentment is like drinking poison and waiting exactly. for your enemy to die. Exactly what I was thinking. So I said, Tony, is his life? I his life. So I told Riva, I said, you know, let me tell you, the higher power knows how to deal with Hitler better than you do or I do. And let me tell you this, as you and I are speaking, the higher power is dealing with Hitler. Yeah. Why do you want Hitler to live with in you. this meager, important real estate of your psyche yeah. I can see your anger. I can see your hatred. I can see all the lines. I said, how is it an opinion? Yeah. 
I said, you know, this stuff eventually manifests into disease. Because if you stay so bitter and in anger and hatred, it becomes cancer. And so why, don't you, why don't you let Hitler go, mm. knowing that the higher power is dealing with it? Yeah. So love and joy can live there. You don't have um, to take on Hitler. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but this is not helping you. Yeah. And somehow, and then I told her Edith's story. I said, Edith is a Holocaust survivor. So she was actually in, you know, Auschwitz. And she was also, uh, and that's forgiven because she recognized she didn't want Hitler to control the rest of her life. Mm. So let it go, knowing that Hitler is paying for it and will continue to pay for it. So you don't have to worry about it. And the light bulb went on. And even on the end of the second day, you could see her aura shifting. You could see these lines now becoming less defined and fading. And then a month later, I got a very beautiful card from her. Mm. And I get a lot of letters, as I told you, over 100,000, 150,000 letters from kids. But I also get a lot of adult cards. And this was particularly beautiful. She spent a lot of time on this card. And she thanked me because she says, you know, this has been something she's been fighting for over 30 years. And then at the bottom, there was a PS. My husband thanks you. We've been, we've been married for 35 years. And now we have the most loving relationship that we've ever had in 35 years because Hitler doesn't live here anymore. There was a third person under that roof. Yeah, so... She's not cheating on her husband anymore. <laughs> <laughs> With the worst. Yeah, so that's what's difficult in getting forgiveness. It's something you have to do for yourself. I think it keeps I, people tied to the person they lost or the, the loss that this other negative force caused. So yeah. it, it's their way of holding on. I owe it to this person who I lost because of Hitler. I'll stay angry at Hitler. That, that keeps me connected to them. But there's, it's like you said before, you can teach violence to gain power or you can teach active ways of loving and acceptance and how to love yourself and soothe yourself. Then there's so much more possibility created, just like you said, versus I'm just going to stay angry because that's what my parents did and that's what my grandparents did and I'm going to hold on to this, these people suck or this, I don't do this or I don't buy that kind of car or whatever it is so that I have built my limitations because that's what my identity is. Right, yeah. Unfortunately, the English language doesn't have words for everything. In Sanskrit, mm -hmm. we have a word called ahimsa, which essentially means do no harm which is opposite of violence. So non-violence used to be two words. One of my good friends is Arun Gandhi, who is the fifth grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. And we've spoken often together. He finally worked hard to make non-violence one word because it's two negatives, non and violence. But now if you look it up, uh, non-violence has been put into one word, so it becomes not two negative words and trying to get away from that word. Okay. But... Uh, I don't know why, and I sometimes use ahimsa because there are many Sanskrit words that have, that have come into the English language. Karma, mm. mantra, mm. diva, sure. guru, uh, raja. Dharma. Dharma. So why can't ahimsa become a word as well? I love it. So maybe there's something you can promote as well. You know? I still like something more active, like illuminating. Yeah. or loving 
Yeah. Uh, but you're right. There need we we should come up with that. We'll have a word a word sleuth, and and you and I can once a week just send a new word to each other. How about that? That sounds good. <laughs> Okay, so this is the part in every episode where I'm going to talk about some of the life lessons or takeaways or prophetic wisdom that we can get from each episode. Um, I think one of the most beautiful quotes that I got from Azim in this talk today was that there were victims at both ends of the gun. And uh, even if there isn't a gun involved, whenever there is a moment of challenge or conflict in our lives, we have to remember that the reason why there is conflict is because there are two different entities at either side that need to make peace. And if we can look at the other as a soul that is connected to us, we might actually have a shot, so to speak, at uh, melding together again and finding a way to freedom. Violence is a learned behavior. No child is born violent. There is found purpose in tragedy. In every crime, there's an opportunity to better society. We have an opportunity to practice senseless love every day. And are we doing it? Holding on to anger and resentment only hurts you. The harm I do to you is actually harm I'm doing to myself. Not forgiving someone is actually a threat to democracy. We must seek to create a different leadership model, one that is based on strong ethical and moral and spiritual values, as opposed to running after fame, power, violence, money, how good someone looks, and how interesting they sound on the outside. Leadership that will create a world that is inclusive, kind, generous, in search of service for the other, promoting love. We can't just wake up one morning and see that we're all at peace. We actually have to proactively work for it. Parenting is the toughest job on the planet, and sometimes it continues even after one of the parties passes. Thank you so much for listening. I am well aware that you have a million things to do, and there's a million things you could be doing while you're driving, walking, jogging, running, crocheting, eating, cooking, doing all the things that you're doing right now, and it means so much to me that you're taking the time to spend it with me. We will be having a second episode of this particular show, so stick around for part two of my dialogue with Azim Kamisa. If this episode inspired you at all, made you look at the world a little differently, I want to hear about it. Please post about it on Facebook, TikTok, your Instagram, tag me, and maybe someone you love who might need to hear it also. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. I want to thank my friend, educator, singer, songwriter, and fellow SLBCer Craig Parks for introducing me to Azim. And I want to thank my sister, Kathy Heller Reinstein, for being an amazing human, soul, sister, friend, educator, inspirer, and for inspiring me to do this. This episode was produced by Katya Soto. If you have a great story about failure, freedom, or forgiveness, please write to us. If you know somebody with a great story, please write to us about that as well. We want to hear from you. If you like what you hear, share the episode. Please subscribe, leave testimonials, leave comments. Your opinions matter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing and for sharing these episodes. Please join us on Facebook and Instagram and check out our content at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. May we all choose to look for and see the light that lives in all of us in all ways, 
always. <laughs>